Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with eBedrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. It's the Sunday debate, and this week we're looking at the climate crisis and how to produce energy that doesn't cost the world. We'll be asking, is hydrogen an answer to some of the planet's problems? Today's debate is in partnership with Iberdrola. Our host for the discussion is Kamal Ahmed, journalist, author, and former editorial director of BBC News. Here's Kamal with more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energized, a debate series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Ibidrola, bringing together really the leading voices across energy and the environment, surely one of the most important debates for the world at the moment. I'm your host, Kamal Ahmed, and tonight's topic is hydrogen, a green silver bullet or just a lot of hype. I'm speaking to you from New York, but we have audiences from around the world and three expert guests in hydrogen speaking from the UK. Now, this is the third in a series of three debates which we've hosted. First was on COP26, success or failure and electric cars. And boy, were they uh, lively. Do catch up with those on the Intelligence Squared website at intelligencesquared.com forward slash energized. I hope you find them a really interesting listen again, full of expertise and great comment. Over the next hour, we're going to hear from our expert uh, speakers. They're going to give us a full briefing on where we are with the hydrogen debate. So let's get on with this big, vital conversation. And our first speaker tonight is Professor Nigel Brandon. Now, Nigel is well known to many people uh, in this industry, an expert of long standing. He is the Chair in Sustainable Development in Energy at Imperial College London and Dean of the Faculty of Engineering. His research is focused on electrochemical devices for low carbon energy applications with a particular focus on fuel cells, electrolyzers, and batteries. 
He's also director of the UK Hydrogen and Fuel Cells Hub and chair of Imperial Sustainable Gas Institute. Nigel, give us, I'm going to describe it as a relatively simple overview of the science behind how hydrogen works as an energy source. Over to you, Nigel. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I think we, we perhaps say a few things right at the start, which is that hydrogen is an energy carrier. We have to put energy in to produce the hydrogen that we can then use. Its big advantage is that once we've made hydrogen, it doesn't carry any carbon molecules with it. And therefore, it's a very clean source. It's a very clean fuel once we then come to convert it, whether we're converting it back into electricity or burning it to raise heat. But the fact that we can't find hydrogen in its natural form on Earth, we find it in the sun, but on Earth it's bound to, as part of other molecules. You find it in water as H2O, uh, we find it in hydrocarbons. Um, for example, most hydrogen today is made from natural gas, which is methane, which contains uh, one carbon and four hydrogen, CH4. Uh, and to release the hydrogen, we need to put in energy. So if you like, the environmental credentials of hydrogen very much depend on exactly how we've chosen to make it. If we've made it from water by electrolysis, in other words, we've taken renewable electricity and we've used that to split the water into hydrogen and oxygen, then we've essentially made hydrogen with no carbon emissions associated with it. We've made what people refer to as green hydrogen. If on the other hand, we've made hydrogen from a fossil fuel like natural gas, and we produce hydrogen, we've also released that carbon into the environment, which comes out as carbon dioxide. Um, so if we don't capture that CO2, we've made hydrogen with relatively high CO2 footprint. And from a carbon perspective, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And people refer to this as gray or brown hydrogen. The other approach is to use carbon capture and storage and to sequester or capture and store the carbon dioxide that we've emitted when we've made hydrogen from, say, natural gas. And that produces a low carbon, but not a zero carbon hydrogen, because some of the CO2 will escape into the atmosphere. We might be able to capture over 90% of it, but some, some will still escape. Plus, we can have, of course, emissions associated with the production and distribution of the natural gas in the first place. And this is what people refer to as blue hydrogen. And I'm sure we'll be coming back to some of these points over the course of um, this conversation. So um, having made our hydrogen, we then need to do something useful with it. We need to be able to uh, distribute it. We, it's a gas. Um, it's a light gas. Um, so actually carrying large amounts of hydrogen in small volumes can be a challenge. Um, uh, uh, but, and also it's a gas that is a very small molecule. So we have to pay great attention to making certain that we keep it safe uh, and, and tightly located inside our pipes uh, and other vessels. Um, we need to, so we need to be able to distribute it, store it, and then use it. Um, we can raise heat with it. It's a fuel, it's a, it's, a, it's a gaseous fuel, and we can burn it to raise heat. We can also put it into another type of electrochemical device called a fuel cell, which is a very high efficiency means of taking hydrogen back into electricity. So having done all of this, why, why do we want to do it? Um, and that's because for some applications, for example, for transport applications which require a large amount of energy to be stored on the vehicle, things like trucks or buses, ships or planes, um, hydrogen is a potentially very attractive zero carbon or very low carbon fuel for those applications, um, where a battery um, doesn't really give us the energy that we need for the journeys that we wish to make. 
There are other applications like steel making, for example, which is a very highly carbon intensive process, which we may well be able to decarbonize by putting in hydrogen rather than using carbon as a coke as the reducing agent in the steel making process. And we may also want to be able to use hydrogen to store very large amounts of energy, for example, terawatt hours of energy that we may well need in the future if we go with very high levels of wind uh, energy generation, for example, in the UK. And often in the winter, there's a period of several weeks where we get very low wind and we need to be able to find a way of strategically storing the energy we need to take us through that period. And hydrogen is, is certainly an attractive op um, opportunity there. And finally, we rely extensively on natural gas in the UK, in particular to heat our buildings through gas boilers. Uh, and it's a really difficult move to switch all gas boilers in the UK off and move them to electrical heating through heat pumps. And there's a lot of interest in whether we could use hydrogen uh, to use those with a variant of that boiler or indeed a fuel cell in your home to provide heat or indeed heat and power for your home. So there's a, a lot of interest in the applications where hydrogen might play its role as part of an energy system delivering a low to zero carbon energy carrier. So I'm sure we'll discuss these points further, but, but I'll stop there. Thank you. That's fantastic, Nigel. Thanks for the overview. And um, as we've already seen from the questions, uh, yes, that distinction between um, the different types of hydrogen is absolutely vital to nail immediately, which you did very helpfully. Just wondered, Nigel, I know this is not a binary issue, but there are critics, and I will get onto this, but I just wondered just where you are in terms of this question about silver bullets or overhyped. And I think, Nigel, we were chatting before this event. You, you've, you've been in this, <laughs> in this conversation for an awful long time. I just wondered if you give us a bit of your story about being in this conversation for an awful long time and just how you feel around, admittedly, rather binarily set out, is it a silver bullet or has it been, or is there a danger of being overhyped? Well, look, I think the first thing to say is that there isn't a silver bullet for the energy challenge, right? So I think that's quite a simple question to answer, but perhaps I can just explain why I say that in, in the context of hydrogen. Um, you're right, I've, I've, had, I've had the good fortune to be involved in this, in this sector uh, for a number of years now, and I've seen waves of enthusiasm for hydrogen in the past. Um, if we go back um, 20 years or so, uh, there was a lot of interest in hydrogen, particularly as a transport fuel and particularly for light duty vehicles. Uh, and that was a particular focus. Um, uh, the technology at that time um, received a lot of attention, but it really didn't deliver. Uh, of course, we now live in different times and battery electric vehicles are delivering. And I think we can discuss, of course, about whether light duty vehicles um, can be fueled on hydrogen. Of course they can, but it's not the most obvious place that I would focus on in terms of using hydrogen today, certainly not in the first instance. I think battery electric is really taking that market for the, for the moment at least. Um, uh, and so really hydrogen got a bit of a bad name. It didn't work. Um, and um, lots of people thought it was a very silly idea. Um, uh, Elon Musk, of course, famously refers to hydrogen fuel cells as full cells. Um, but is the question is, was, that, was it such a silly idea? I mean, I think that my answer to that is no, uh, it wasn't. And what's changed for hydrogen in the intervening period is, the, is our national commitments to net zero. And once you've got net zero on the table and you seriously want to think about 
decarbonizing all sectors of the economy, it gets very hard to do that with electricity alone. Of course, we're making huge progress in using uh, renewable electricity or low carbon electricity from nuclear as well um, to decarbonize uh, electricity and then using that electricity as a transport fuel in an electric vehicle or as a heat source. Uh, but for some of the applications I mentioned, for example, an aeroplane or indeed a very large truck, um, you need an awful lot of energy on that vehicle. And it's really hard to do that with a battery solution, which is what you would need to carry those, uh, carry, carry those electrons with you on the journey. So a chemical fuel, which has a much higher uh, energy density than electricity, of course, still a lower energy density than a liquid um, hydrocarbon like gasoline, uh, but nonetheless, a lot higher than electricity is therefore very attractive. Um, similarly, for some of the high temperature applications like steelmaking, you can think about using electricity for steelmaking, but it's not the most obvious answer, perhaps. Um, so for me, it's about, I think it's a recognition, and this is why hydrogen is now on the table, um, that it's the role that hydrogen can play as part of a decarbonisation uh, effort, tackling the right problems where hydrogen is advantaged and brings you therefore cost and performance benefits relative to other options. And I think it's this more nuanced view of the energy system we have today. I think it's a more informed view. I think technologies have also advanced over the last 20 to 30 years and are now far more mature. That's not to say they need to be, they are where they need to be. Uh, but for me, so I, I guess that's my reflection of having seen um, a hype in 20 years ago. Um, uh, I think over-criticism, because I spent a lot of my career in the last 20 years justifying why hydrogen should be on the table. And now I think a surge of interest, and it's about tempering that enthusiasm and focusing it onto the right applications and the right markets and making certain that we're developing the right products for those alongside all of the other very good things we need to do um, for decar to help us decarbonize the economy. Fantastic, Nigel. As you say, it's, it's such an important part now of the net zero um, approaches uh, hydrogen is vital in all eight, I think, of the scenarios that the EU has put forward uh, to uh, help the continent achieve net zero by 2050. So as you say, it's time, in part at least, as you explain, may have come. Thank you so much, Nigel, for those opening uh, thoughts. Really, really helpful. Our next speaker is uh, Barry Carruthers. Barry is the Hydrogen Director of Scottish Power, which is a subsidiary of Ipidrola. Uh, his previous roles include Head of Corporate Innovation, Sustainability and Quality. And this followed several years in Scottish Power Renewables, where Barry led activities in marine energy and wind innovations across uh, the sector. Now, Barry, you come from the industry side, but obviously as well from the side of environment and how energy companies are involved much more closely than historically in uh, the whole uh, debate. Just building on what Nigel has said, how valuable does Scottish Power and do you, Barry, think that hydrogen will be in the mix as we go or build towards decarbonizing the energy that we use for everyday life? Yeah, of course. Uh I mean, the first thing is to say that 15 minutes from Nigel there should be packaged up and made to watch by uh, policymakers and investors and customers alike. You covered so much and a lot of it is, is exactly, you know, I couldn't summarise it better myself because in answer to your question, Kamal, we see that as being, uh, you know, across across the energy sector, 
across society. We kind of see maybe 85, uh, 90% being electrified uh, to allow us to get towards net zero targets. So that's still going to leave you with 10, 15, possibly even 20%, uh, which again, the, the well-known hard-to-abate sectors, uh, not just for energy and heat, but of, of course there are times when actually you actually need a molecule and not an electron. And so for us, why, why are we in this space as a, a, a renewable electricity company, essentially? Now, when you think about Scottish power in the last decade and more familiar to people in the UK, obviously, we've gone on our own transition of uh, shutting down our coal plants, moving away from gas. So now every electron that we produce is onshore, offshore wind and solar. So we now bring new technologies to the fore, like battery storage, uh, and green hydrogen is a natural progression for us because actually our our job, and I say this to our team all the time, our, our team is not there to sell hydrogen and make hydrogen. It's to help customers decarbonize. And so actually a vast majority of our conversation with customers is all about trying to find the right solution for them. And if that answer is renewable electricity and an electric boiler, then that's what the answer should be. If, it, if hydrogen's not the right solution for it, then we shouldn't be proposing it. So that's our philosophy is absolutely a decarbonisation company where renewable electricity and green hydrogen work alongside each other uh, to offer that full kind of net zero solution for the future. So what we're kind of doing just now is, is working right across UK and Ireland, certainly a Scottish power. But as you mentioned about Iberdrola, we're very much a global hydrogen team. So you'll see us do stuff in North and South America, Australia, mainland Europe. But in UK and Ireland particularly, we are working on more than 20 projects across UK and Ireland at the moment. And I would describe them as kind of three major scales uh, or three, three kind of brackets. One small scale, of course, because one thing we need to appreciate about green hydrogen, and I, I should say from the outset, we're only working in green hydrogen. Uh, it's a... Uh, we're only interested in the cleanest possible way to do things. So, so our small-scale green hydrogen projects do open up parts of not just uh, the economy and society and, and energy sector, but also geographical regions, which might not inherently benefit from really large-scale projects and net zero emission kind of fuels or electricity or, or electrical infrastructure for that matter. So... You know, it's less cost effective, the smaller you get, of course. But if you want, say, a small refueling station for a local bus depot and it's at the outskirts of electrical infrastructure and it's a rural community, you might find yourself building two, five, ten megawatt type projects. But that's right for that community and that, that allows them to decarbonize, whereas they might not be able to uh, do otherwise. The next bracket up, I would kind of call kind of 20 to 100 megawatt which just now is a far more cost-effective way to produce green hydrogen. And we have a couple of example projects there. One on the outskirts of Glasgow, where we have our, our existing Whiteley wind farm, which is the biggest in the UK. We're going to build new solar PV. We're going to build uh, battery storage, but we're also going to build up to 20 megawatts of electrolysis as well. So what that does is allow us to really bring that full decarbonisation story to the table about using wind, sun, and actually a new molecule to do all the kind of vehicle and transportation refueling and industrial help that we need to give for hydrogen. And then in Spain, Nigel touched on it, when you move to things like ammonia and where you actually need chemicals and molecules, 
Uh, we have a fantastic project in Spain, which is looking at ammonia production for fertilizer, which again, historically, very, very large uh, CO2 emissions associated with that. So these are the types of projects in the middle. But what we're moving to now, uh, and hopefully, you know, in the coming months, we'll be able to talk about projects of one, two, probably even 500 megawatts. Now, what that really does is play into the conversation about offshore wind and also liquid fuels. So when you start to talk about shipping, uh, I mean, they're, they're enormous uh, users of liquid fuel, obviously. So then you think about ammonia, liquid organic hy hydrogen carriers, liquid hydrogen, e-methanol. These are all derivatives of hydrogen, but they really start to lend themselves at scale to allow you to really start to decarbonize the, the genuinely tough kind of cross-border, large-scale transportation, large-scale industry. It's a really, really exciting place to be, and we can see that decade ahead right now. Barry, can I just ask then a little bit around green and blue? And uh, yeah. given what you've said about Scottish Power's approach and that you're looking at green hydrogen, do you have sympathy with the critics of blue hydrogen that say that given um, uh, how it's produced, given that CCS is not in all cases or many cases a proven technology, that there is, it is right to be suspicious is maybe not quite the right word, but I hope you know where I'm poking at, that actually we should be focusing our energies on green hydrogen and that blue hydrogen, which many firms are backing, is actually difficult to support as part of the net zero journey. It would probably be easier to just get us all in the room and we'll just have a, a green versus blue fight. Let's just do that. So, uh, no, I think, you know, there, anyone who's uh, uh, on, let's call it the blue side of the debate for the, for the sake of context, uh, they will have very good points to get across around scale and how uh, carbon capture technology is progressing. Absolutely, all these things exist. I think very philosophically, though, Certainly I personally, but we as a company come from the position that says go for zero now, invest in it now. We've got all the right component parts for it now. So why would we potentially delay major investment decisions in things that might still result in millions of tonnes of CO2 being emitted over a long period of time when actually I think a lot of the rationale so far has been around green hydrogen perhaps not scaling up fast enough or needs to become cheaper faster. But I strongly suspect that actually, considering you can't buy blue hydrogen now, but you can buy green hydrogen now. Maybe not a lot of it, but you can buy it. So when you think about our projects, and I mean selfishly just Scottish Power projects at this point in time, they'll be producing tons and tons of green hydrogen across the UK by 2025, if not by the end of 2023. So I think we'll find the scale of green hydrogen will grow so much faster than anyone's predicted so far that actually it will start to erode the conversation of, and I don't agree with the, the, the use of the phrase kind of a transition, you know, blue is a transition to get to green. I, I personally don't agree with that because we have the scale of Scotland, uh, for example, in Scottish waters. We already have offshore wind right across, you know, British waters. That level of electricity is coming on board now to the electrical system. The costs are falling. And the only two other things that we need to go the right way to make green hydrogen go faster, bigger and cheaper is economies of scale 
which will happen as we build bigger factories and, and uh, make the process more uh, automated. And then the efficiency of the electrolyzers themselves, which we're already seeing fantastic strides forward. So the three biggest drivers, the cost of renewable electricity, the economies of scale that come with the electrolyzers and the electrical efficiency are all pointing in the right direction for significant scale and cost benefit by the end of the decade. Thanks so much, Barry. Uh, before we come to the expert environmental journalist, Fiona Harvey, I just wanted to ask you quickly, Barry, just a question from the floor, so to speak, the online floor, I don't know if there is such a thing, but um, from Paul Kemp, which I could just put in now, which I think would be useful. So Paul asks, Barry, can you comment on the future of electricity prices, given a relatively large resource of renewable, of renewable power has come online in recent years, but the price to the end user has never dropped? Do you subscribe to the potential of falling prices in the future? This is particularly relevant to hydrogen, as green hydrogen is priced according to the cost of electricity producing it. Well, it is, uh, to, to reinforce that point, we have some projects where the cost of electricity is 40 or 50% of the makeup of cost of hydrogen. We have other projects where it's probably 80, maybe even 90% of the cost. So that's how fundamental the cost of the electricity going into the electrolyzer is. Now, when you look at the falling costs of renewables, and they have fallen dramatically over time, we shouldn't forget there's two elements to it, though, to what, I mean, there's so many elements that go into the cost to the consumer, obviously, and there's lots of lots of things that go into the customer's bill. But there's there's really two parts to what, what the future looks like. There's the levelized cost of energy that comes from the asset, but then there's the system integration cost. And so the two of those go together to give you the whole system cost. So what we have to do is not only keep building bigger and more efficient turbines and more efficient solar panels, but we also need to reduce the cost in the, the integration part. Now, that will be things like building more battery storage to reduce stress on the, on the system, more ancillary services, you know, being able to provide services back to the grid, which reduces the overall cost. So it's not even just about how cheap uh, we can start to make the electricity production. It's also how we manage it and balance it because that all gets reflected back. So actually, of course, we should see uh, you know, falling costs for, for electricity in the future because that's the volume of renewable electricity we're going to bring onto the system. But we do have to invest in the other part of the, of the equation, which is the integration cost. Great. Thanks so much, uh, Barry. So to our final speaker, um, who is Fiona Harvey. Uh, Fiona is an award-winning journalist who has covered the environment since 2004 at the Financial Times and subsequently for The Guardian. She's written extensively on every environmental issue, from air pollution to biodiversity to ocean plastics to, of course, the overall issue of climate change. She has twice won the Foreign Press Association Award for Environment Story of the Year, the British Environment and Media Awards Journalist of the Year, and in 2020, she was named in the Women's Hour Power List of 30 Top UK Women, focusing on our planet. Fiona, welcome. Thank you so much for joining this um, conversation. Can I ask you where you sit on that spectrum when it comes to hydrogen, about its possible use in the decarbonisation journey? Are you more towards the silver bullet side of uh, the debate or more swinging towards the it's overhyped and we should be taking care about how we handle this conversation? Yes, well, I think it's clear that it's not uh, a silver bu bullet. 
um, you know, we, we, we can see that hydrogen has a place in some uh, applications, as we've just heard. Um, you know, for instance, in uh, long distance shipping, uh, perhaps in aviation, uh, certainly in, in chemicals and in some forms of battery storage and so on. Um, but seeing hydrogen as a silver bullet is really not helpful, actually. And we are in great danger of actually shoehorning hydrogen into places where it shouldn't be. And that would be a terrible waste of money. Worse than that, it would be a waste of time. And time is what we don't have because we have to have emissions in the next decade uh, in order to stay within 1.5 degrees and reach net zero by 2050. So we can't afford to go around, uh, you know, putting around uh, in little potentially interesting areas, uh, you know, talking about, you know, applications for hydrogen that would be great if they ever materialised, uh, but may not do so. So we've got to be really careful where we put our energies, where we put our money and where we put our time. Uh, over the next decade and beyond. Um, and what we've heard uh, from the, the, the brilliant uh, presentations we've just had from, from Nigel and, and Barry, which, you know, as you said, Kamal, really should be uh, sent out more widely. Um, those were really sane, uh, sensible, uh, grounded in fact. The only problem is when those sensible arguments get to Westminster, and they meet the world-beating hype factory that is our government, uh, and suddenly these sensible messages get all messed up and churned about, uh, and then we get nonsense coming out the other end. We also get politicians being prey to industry lobbying, because uh, you know what you can see from reading between the lines of, uh, of what we've just heard is that there are opportunities here for the fossil fuel industry. And there are a lot of people in the fossil fuel industry who can see that the writing is on the wall for them because of climate change and who are desperately trying to find other ways to continue the life of their product. And many of them see hydrogen as having the potential to do so. If you can convert your natural gas into hydrogen, uh, then you've got a, a, a an infinite life potentially for natural gas and um, so we've got to be really really wary of that because actually some of these applications uh, that have been talked about for hydrogen for instance hydrogen boilers uh, in our homes uh, or hydrogen vehicles uh, on our streets um, some of those would really serve the interests of the fossil fuel industry uh, but they might do very little uh, for us in terms of combating, uh, combating climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So that's what we've got to be careful about. Um, there are other applications, uh, alternative uh, solutions uh, to many of the applications that are being talked about for hydrogen at the moment. Uh, for instance, you know, uh, I just mentioned hydrogen boilers. We've got heat pumps. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not sexy, they're not cool, but they work. Uh, and we could have them in our homes. Um, but, you know, instead we hear a lot of talk about hydrogen boilers. Similarly for hydrogen vehicles, you know, we've got electric vehicles and they work. We've got public transport and it works. And that would go a great deal further in terms of cutting emissions um, than uh, just switching to hydrogen. So we've got to be really careful that we can see that there are 
uh, alternatives here. You know, we're talking about making hydrogen using renewable energy uh, to make green hydrogen. But why don't we just use that renewable energy? Um, that might be a, a, a better idea. Um, so I think we've got to be really, really careful with this. We've got to be uh, careful that we don't get captured by uh, parts of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we've, got, we've got to be careful that this argument, uh, when it's being had in political circles, actually sticks to the facts. Um, and we've got to be careful that we don't just turn hydrogen into a vehicle for enabling fossil fuel lobbyists to continue their careers by different means. Thanks so much, Fiona. It was interesting when I do my reading ahead of this um, uh, discussion, another area was that this should be not seen as an alternative to things like we should insulate our homes better and actually be using less energy to do the things we should be doing. Is that is that something we should also be thinking about? You've gone, you've you've discussed heat pumps um, as well. That it it becomes almost some people in the public, and I think your wonderful phrase, the hype of politicians, suddenly think, oh well, we can just relax because hydrogen's hydrogen's going to save us. And wouldn't it be lovely if that was true? You know, I mean, you know, we could all relax and go home. Uh, problem solved. But it's just not as simple as that. And, uh, you know, hydrogen does have lots of problems uh, associated with it. Not the obvious ones, you know, so people uh, thinking that it's, you know, it's dangerous and so on. It's not that. It's the fact that it can actually have more emissions uh, than ordinary fossil fuels in some applications. Um, and the fact that it can, you know, it, it relies, making it green in many uh, cases, relies on some heroic assumptions about technology. You know, if you're talking about using carbon capture and storage uh, to make hydrogen green, well, if you're using carbon capture and storage, why don't you just use natural gas uh, with carbon capture and storage? Why move to hydrogen at all? Um, so there are lots of flaws in some of the arguments that are put forward uh, for hydrogen, but we shouldn't, it's difficult. You know, we, we, we shouldn't write off hydrogen it's clear that there are some really good applications for it um, where it has potential. Um, you know, uh, in shipping, you know, as we've heard, there are very few other ways of getting ships uh, to travel long distances around the world. So we should definitely be putting lots of money uh, into R&D, uh, into getting these hydrogen-fueled ships. We should be putting money into R&D for hydrogen-fueled aeroplanes. Definitely, we should be doing that. Um, but we've got to be careful and strategic and not waste time on some of these, you know, th these applications for which we have good or better alternatives. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nigel, could I could I bring you in on on this? Um, in the hands of politicians, hydrogen is a dangerous thing. I think, as as Fiona's put it, with the hype. I mean, Nigel, how how do we ensure we focus on the right applications? Now, you gave quite a long list of the type of things we could do. If you just had to choose, maybe I know this is difficult, and I'm such a journalist here, but are there two or three really specific? So, first of all, how do we stop the hype? And secondly, what are the two or three things we should be focusing on? All right. Well, look, I'll, I'll also be a politician and, and, and give you a, answer a different question to start with, and perhaps I come back to those. I just wanted to pick up on a few of Fiona's comments. So, I mean, Barry and I are both engineers, right? And, and I, I, we like, I guess we like to take a kind of rational evidence-led approach to things. I do understand completely how difficult it must be on the political side of the spectrum where you've got people like us, but also many other people shouting at you that whatever they, you know, whatever their favorite thing is, is the best thing. Just to, just to sort of, at the risk of boring everyone, I mean, from a, from a thermodynamics perspective, right, if we've got electrons that we've made from renewables and we can use those electrons as electricity, then that's what we should do. So if we can capture, if we can make electricity and use it, that's it, right? The end, that's what we should do. So electric cars, fine. If we can make, of course, it's a great idea. And we should do that. They're much more efficient than doing anything else with the electricity. But sometimes you don't get the functionality, as we've said already. You can't fly across the Atlantic with 150 people on electricity today, and probably will never be able to. So, um, and sometimes we make the electricity in parts of the world where it's extremely difficult to cost-effectively move it to where it's needed. So, if we can't use the electricity as electrons, the next best thing is to turn it into a molecule. And the most obvious molecule to turn it into is hydrogen. Um, it's the most it's the it's the most efficient way of taking electricity into an into a molecular energy carrier. Once it's just a molecule, it's much easier to think about how we move it. We can put it in tankers. We can put it in pipes. Um, so that's where hydrogen comes in. Of course, we pay a penalty for that. Our electrolyzers are somewhere between seventy and ninety percent efficient, depending on the type of electrolyzer and the. The most commercially available ones are more like 70. So we're throwing away a third of the value in making the hydrogen. But if we can't use the electricity in a sensible way, that's still a rational thing to do. Now, in some parts of the world, we can't use the hydrogen. If we're making hydrogen in the deserts of Saudi Arabia, which they currently are, or in the deserts of Australia, which they also are, um, we need to put it into ships to move it to uh, where it might be traded internationally. And then we may well turn it into ammonia because ammonia is easy to, much easier to put into a ship. And of course, we can also power the ship on that ammonia. And then it's green ammonia. And that's a very sensible thing to do if we can't use the hydrogen. But this hierarchy is really important. You know, you, if you use electricity first, hydrogen second, and then you make other things from hydrogen third, which could be an e-fuel, it could be an e-methanol uh, that Barry mentioned. There's all sorts of other carriers you can make. But each of those, each of those conversion steps costs you money and degrades the efficiency. You lose efficiency. So that's from a that's the kind of that's an engineering view of the world. Um, 
what I would say then about where you might, on the heat point that Fiona made, right? And I, I think one thing I'd throw into this, and it's, I think it's for debate, because this is the opposite of an engineering view. From an engineering view, um, heat pumps are really effective ways of turning electricity into heat. Um, a coefficient of performance of three and a half or something like that means you get three and a half units of heat per unit of electricity. Uh, and obviously, from the, from the argument I've just made, then that's clearly the most obvious thing we should do. However, I think we have to remember that consumers are involved at the end of this process. And I'm not a consumer expert, I'm just an engineer. But um, it's not so obvious to me that consumers will buy into having all of their natural gas turned off, um, all, of their all of their home radiators replaced, because that's what has to happen if it's a heat pump. Uh, if you live in a flat, it's not so obvious what you do about that. Um, and so whilst hydrogen is by, by way, you know, a less efficient answer, it does give consumers choice about whether they take their fuel as electricity or gas. And I, I just throw that out there because I think it's an important practical point about how you roll out low carbon heating technologies. I, I just can't see people accepting an instruction that they can't uh, continue to use the heating system that they pay for and that someone is going to come in at the lowest price and give them a new one. Uh, and by the way, they'll have to redecorate the house at the same time. So I just think it's a really tough sell. Um, so to come back to your question now, if I may, about what's the best, where would I put my money? Well, I would put, I think I would look at in the, for me, hydrogen targets, things like buses. So on the transport side of bus, I think buses are really interesting market. It's a public good piece, not often underpinned by public support. It brings local air quality benefits and uh, a fixed refueling infrastructure and, uh, well, one which is hard for batteries to deliver against. So, so hydrogen fuel cell buses, I think, is an important market um, for sure. Uh, that would be one of my earliest. I think also I would think about steel making at, an, at the other end of the scale. Uh, really, uh, there, there is a process for steel making called direct reduction of iron, which currently uses natural gas. Um, as the reducing agent is mainly done in North America where natural gas prices are low. We use carbon here in blast furnaces as the reducing agent, but that makes an awful, awfully high carbon intensity steel. Uh, you could make hydrogen by electrolysis and use that as the reducing agent, and then you've decarbonized that steel. So I would go with um, buses and trucks and steel as my kickoff uh, areas for hydrogen. Thank you so much, Nigel. That's really uh, fascinating. Um, connected questions around the government, one from um, uh, Tony Marsh, and maybe Barry, I could come to you, and then there's actually a specific question for you as well, Barry. But um, Tony asks, I understand the government uh, is developing a hydrogen um, uh, business model. How critical do you think government initiatives could, will be, could be or will be in accelerating the move towards targeted hydrogen adoption? So very short answer is critical. Uh, the slightly longer answer is uh, it has to fit within the framework which we're trying to create to make sensible decisions. As Fiona said, uh, we are a, I am a massive fan of not creating either incentives or, or disincentives which ends up shoehorning either hydrogen or any other project into the place where it shouldn't be. Because all you end up is white elephant projects that you wish you'd never built and then it, everything gets a bad rap. So, so the business model 
uh, is critical as we see it right now because it's going to unlock the industrial uses. Uh, what we're seeing right now in the market, even our early projects are focused on mobility and transportation because we actually do have uh, some levers and some incentives to work with Department from Transport about the renewable transport fuel obligation. And what that does is drive us towards, oh, that's a terrible pun, that was unintentional. Uh, <laughs> it drives us towards uh, using hydrogen in things like trains, shipping, uh, as you say, uh, trucks and buses, because there is a very real comparator there. I mean, for example, we, we think we can produce hydrogen and, and get it into transport sector at, at diesel parity. So that actually makes that a very simple decision about saving CO2. The financial burden is then pretty much on the cost of buying a new vehicle. So that capital investment in buying a new vehicle, but otherwise your operational expenses should be very similar, in some cases better. But industry will struggle until we have what, what's known as the Bayes business model, where effectively what you have to say is, here's the price that I require from a hydrogen project to make it viable. But here is the price which is lower that the industrial customer can afford to pay to switch to come away from fossil fuels. And so if we never bridge that gap, then the large industrial users will never have that trigger moment to invest in a, you know, a hydrogen boiler or to come away from a natural gas supply. Or even, you need to remember, a lot of the counterfactuals that we work with every day are people who burn heavy, heavy oil, heavy fuel oil. Uh, and they might not be on gas grid, so it might not be a direct comparison with natural gas, for example. So actually, the counterfactual is so bad that by the time you start to build up the business case of carbon tax, uh, ETS schemes, uh, and that business model is really the unlocking pin to say that if you're willing to switch to a green alternative, you're not going to, you know, uh, end up having to shut your business after four years because green hydrogen is too expensive. So that's how critical it is. It's, it's more critical than capital investment. Uh, for, for everyone's kind of sense of context, uh, capital grants are required to help get projects going. Of course they are. But there are, uh, capital grants are almost an order of magnitude less valuable than having that long-term framework that everyone knows they can buy into, build projects for 20, 40 years, but also allows the industrial customers to really make those investments for, for a few decades with a, a forecast of what their energy costs are going to be as well. Great. Thanks, Barry. I'm going to get through a few questions now. So if we could just maybe uh, just shorten our answers, brilliant as they are, a little bit. And also people do get engaged in the chat, which is uh, throwing out all sorts of fascinating points. But another question for uh, you, uh, Barry, uh, this time uh, from uh, one of our uh, anonymous attendees. Um, that person asks... Curtailment of generated electricity from wind remains a big issue when supply is high but demand lower. How will this surplus electricity be used to generate green H2? What technology is going to be put in place? Will the decision to produce green H2 be manual or will it be AI driven? Barry, are you going to sit there with a couple of dials, dialing up, dialing down, or is a machine going to look after all that so we get the most efficient use of the re renewables that we are producing? Well, that sounds like a couple of green careers for my children. I'll give them a dial each and see what they do. Uh, no, I think actually the constraint point is really interesting, but it's not as simple as, as conceptually people would think it is. By that, I mean, if you are a constrained wind farm and you're asked to turn off for a very good reason, 
you really need your electrolyzer to be there, co-located with the wind asset, so that you're not then creating another problem by saying, I'll take that constrained wind, but you're actually at another part of the network which has not solved anything. So conceptually, it is something that we need to work on as an industry to try and make best of the wind assets that we have, but it's not quite as simple as, as I say, the, the concept itself. We need to do a wee bit more thinking to make that work. Fantastic. Thank you so much, um, uh, Barry. I've just seen, I've seen Lydia Ebden has put in the uh, chat. So welcome having an attendee from Kenya. Uh, welcome. Yes. Anywhere in the world. Fantastic. Put thoughts in the chat. This is an international issue. Um, there have been a couple of questions um, from um, uh, Mary Bassendine and, and others around Australia. I don't know if any of the panel have any expertise in how Australia, I think it's also got a partnership with Japan, um, uh, I think, uh, on uh, hydrogen uh, development. I just wondered um, if there are any lessons from how Australia um, is is on its hydrogen journey. Fiona, is that, I don't want to catch you out here, Fiona. Is that is that is that something that you've reported on at all about? Is that are there lessons from um, the Australian model? Yeah, I'm afraid some of the lessons uh, from Australia in political terms are, are negative, really. In that you know, it, it, this is a case of uh, industry lobbying, fossil fuel industry lobbying, uh, encouraging uh, you know politicians to see the. To, to set up a hydrogen infrastructure that will then benefit them in the long term. Um, if you once you've kind of gone a, a, a certain way down the road in creating uh, uh, infrastructure, then that sunk cost encourages you to continue uh, doing that even further and further, even when it's not the best answer. And so a lot of fossil fuel lobbyists have seen an opportunity now to start getting governments to buy in to uh, you know, what's called this hydrogen economy um, that then uh, will continue to benefit them uh, for decades into the future, long after we're supposed to have decarbonized the whole economy. Um, so that I think is, is the answer, the, the, the danger there. Um, but if you get a government captured uh, by industry at a critical point when you're looking at these investment pathways, then they think they can, you know, set that investment pathway in, in a direction that uh, benefits them rather than one that benefits the whole community. I mean, Kamal, can I, can I add to Fiona's comment, right, which is, which is, which is that um, Fiona's right that there have been work in, in Australia on taking coal to hydrogen and then liquefying that hydrogen and transporting that to Japan. That is, um, from a carbon perspective, not a very attractive proposition and from an efficiency perspective, not an attractive proposition. It does it did um, develop a liquid hydrogen carrier, which you know, is one way to move that hydrogen. Um, but perhaps I would I would also cite a positive piece in Australia, which they're actually building a very large green hydrogen uh, production facility in Australia as well, and that will take green hydrogen to green ammonia, and then that green ammonia can be shipped. So I think you know that that for me is a more preferable. Uh, solution because the coal route is not the one to go down and that's unabated as well so there's a very high carbon intensity associated with that particular uh, hydrogen stream i don't know i don't think we ever even got to brown hydrogen did we but yes i absolutely take your points um a question that's been raised and this is often in 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 the debate that we can have very intense intense debates in the uk for example but 
the um, one attendee asks, uh, with the UK CO2 emissions at 1% of global and China 29% and rising, isn't all the energy and vast cost of this disproportionate? While we might be doing all this, surely it depends more on others. So just wondered, Nigel, where are you on this this discussion that, oh. that, that we are yeah. such a small well, it, part, the UK is such a small part of this debate that unless frankly, China, the US are, are doing something to drive. What the UK does is is immaterial. Well, I, I guess there's two answers to that. Firstly, I think you need to lead. There's, there is an element of talking, the, of, of walking the walk if you're talking the talk, right? So I think there is an element which we can't, that's almost a moral obligation as well. Secondly, I'd say that the UK has some fantastic capability in this space. Um, Barry represents, uh, you know, industry with some of that fantastic capability, but there are other uh, really innovative businesses, uh, small, medium and large, and a fantastic science base. Um, so if we don't develop a home market, it's very difficult for those companies to develop a global market. And, and that will disadvantage the UK PLC in terms of jobs uh, and so on. So I think that's another really important point. Uh, thirdly, let's not forget that China is moving really hard on this, right? They are not sitting there. And in fact, if I look at some of the big programs in the world, and Barry may or Fiona may wish to comment from their perspective, I think China is doing an awful lot in hydrogen uh, and its related um, technologies. Uh, if we look at batteries, right, the lithium-ion battery is the well-known story. It was invented in the UK, commercialized in Japan, and industrialized in China. So um, we have enough. We is that is that the right thing? I'm not saying it is the right thing in all cases. I think it would be really good for us to have a, a constructive home market. And if we look at, of course, the uh, concerns about natural gas supplies and energy resilience, being able to harvest more of our own indigenous renewables, bearing in mind we have the best wind resource in Europe, in the UK, it's a fantastic resource. Um, but you know we're going to have to do work to be able to harvest that because it's in places that um, where there isn't necessarily a large local demand, and we need to move large amounts of energy quite long distances, which of course electricity can do, but hydrogen can also possibly you know contribute to. So I, I don't take that view. I think it's a very defeatist view, and in fact, you know, for my children <laughs> and now my granddaughter uh, that we now have, um, I'd like to see us with a, a strong footprint and capability in this space competing as well as using the technology. That's great, Nigel, and congratulations to, to your family uh, who are ex uh, growing at all uh, good, a good pace, one hopes. Um, um, let's talk a little bit about the context of where we are in global politics at the moment, and obviously the big debate about Russia and reliance on Russian gas. The question, I suppose, for green hydrogen, I'm, I'm glad that this conversation has focused on that and not, um, and not the other colours, so to speak. But in terms of the speed with which uh, green H2 can become viable in, in many of the areas that we are discussing, Barry, could I, could I ask, is there any way that the two things can be linked? Or is one weaning ourselves off Russian gas, to put it like that, um, uh, dependent on other things? Or can green H2 become part of that debate in speeding us up? I believe it can. But I think the, the interesting anecdote I would share with you, which probably brings us to light, is a, a meeting that we had last week uh, with an industrial customer who had seen their gas bill go from £6,000 a month to £30,000 a month. And so if you want to start talking about use of green hydrogen, 
they've pretty much made their own business case right there. And that's not just the volatility of gas. It, it is, you know, they were looking to decarbonize anyway. But a lot of the a lot of the criticism or, or quite right pressure on green hydrogen is to get the cost down and to move faster, which I kind of feel that the, the current environment is pushing us faster, but also the sector itself is driving itself because what you will see is the technological advances and the innovations coming from things like electrolyzers, but all the other balance of plant as well, compressors and all the overall efficiency of the plant is improving really, really quickly. Uh, any tenders or any information that we looked at six months ago, things are cheaper now uh, for the same project. So I do think all the cost drivers and all the accelerations of timescales is pushing us in the right direction. And not least, the difference is this is not a technology that we are sitting here trying to sell. There's, there's more customer demand right now than projects that we could build. So, I mean, even today, I've probably had three brand new conversations with people who want to decarbonize one way or another. And therefore, we can talk to them about renewable electricity, which creates a business case for solar, onshore and offshore wind. But they may well need a molecule, and therefore that creates a business case for green hydrogen. So the difference now is this is a demand-driven conversation, and that's a really, really healthy place for us to be. That's fantastic, Barry. Now, I know we're coming towards the end of our fabulous hour together, but Craig from Kenya, Lydia, yes, I will ask his question. I was going to ask it from the chat, but he's actually managed to get it into the actual Q&A. Well done, Craig. Um, so Craig's question, uh, is it now, this is quite detailed, so um, I'm going to throw it open to all three of you. Um, is it true that hydrogen ships would need more regular refueling than current and other options? And if so, without the infrastructure in place for suitable refueling, won't this increase costs or bottlenecks in ports. I need to add, I'm based in Kenya and we feel Mombasa would be a perfect strategic hub, but it is impossible to raise the capital without major shipping companies committing to the long-term offtake. So thank you, Craig. Obviously, there's a massive discussion about infrastructure and the response of different industries. Fiona, any thoughts on that? And then maybe just very briefly, we're absolutely at time uh, from Nigel and then Barry, and then we'll have to close. But Fiona, kick us off with Mombasa shipping opportunities. <laughs> I'm afraid that um, I, I don't have the technical expertise, uh, Nigel or Barry might, uh, to know whether hydrogen ships would need more regular refueling. Um, but what I can say is that um, the shipping companies ought definitely to be investing in all the ways that they can to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. They're committed to doing so under the International Maritime Organization, and a lot of them have individually uh, committed to it as well. So we do need to see some action from shipping companies. They have really dragged their feet uh, so far uh, for years. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people don't know, but um, uh, shipping and aviation were left out of uh, the Paris Agreement and of previous uh, agreements on cutting greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, they've kind of had a free pass for a really long time. So it's about time that they started investing. Thank you so much, Fiona. Um, Nigel, a free pass for shipping. It's about time they got with the program, no? Well, to answer the specific question, um, if, uh, if, if they email me, I'll send, you, send them a copy of our paper on the very topic. Uh, the answer in the paper says that if you want to sail a very large ship across the Atlantic, it's going to be very hard to do that on hydrogen. 
but it's entirely possible to do it on green ammonia. If you want to operate ferries, inland waterways, or more local um, marine transport, that's entirely credible on hydrogen. Nigel, only at an Intelligence Squared Ibridola um, debate could you get that type of expertise and personal service. Absolutely brilliant. Barry, we're up to time. I'll leave the last comment uh, with you before thanking everybody. I mean, not specifically maybe on this area of shipping, but just give me your final thoughts on, on the, the opportunity that is here, given Fiona and Fiona's points in particular on the notion of focus on the right things and it's not a panacea. I think that's it. If there if there was three three kind of bullet points that I could I could end with, and I wish I'd thought about these in advance, obviously. Uh, but but it is that moment in time that we've done such a great job with renewables. Let's build more of that. We now have the technology for green hydrogen. Let's build that and let's only use it in the right place. And all of that very selfishly, personal passion of mine is just skills and job creation. And again, it is genuinely about my children. I want them to have green careers. And therefore, that, I think, is the three big opportunities, the renewables, the green hydrogen, and the green careers. Fantastic, Barry. We're at time. Just leaves me to thank Fiona, Nigel, and Barry. What a fascinating conversation. I also want to thank you, the audience. These events have been brilliant as much for the great conversation from the experts as the chats and the questions. We will be saving that chat. So all of you put points there. Those will be saved and we can hand them on for discussion. So thank you to Intelligence Squared and to Ibidrola for hosting these energized debates. They all will be available. IntelligenceSquared.com forward slash energize. Do go and re-listen and share. Nigel, I think you've got to send an email to Craig about shipping, which will be a fantastic thing. We'll make sure that happens. Thanks so much for listening in and being so engaged on the chat. It only leaves for me to say, do look at Intelligence Squared website for new upcoming events. Thank you very much and goodbye.